Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, you can find us on Patreon at Demystified Podcast, or just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Now, today's episode of Demystified is a special collaboration with Penguin Publishing and the Carnegie Medal-winning and New York Times number one best-selling author, Ruta Sepetis. Her book, The Fountains of Silence, is a fictional story taking place within the context of the opening up of Francoist Spain in the late 1950s, a period of history that most people know little to nothing about. Many of you will no doubt have heard about the Spanish Civil War, but did you know that Spain was a fascist dictatorship until 1957? The effects of the period of authoritarianism created divides that exist in Spain to this very day. So whilst the mystery is somewhat subdued in this episode, we're going to give you the 411 on that period of history as a jumping off point. The first two segments will discuss the Spanish Civil War and life under General Franco, and the final segment is an interview with the author herself. Having had a chance to read The Fountains of Silence, I can say, personally, with no false praise, that it is a good read and worth your time if you do find yourself interested in this period after today's episode. You can pick it up at any good bookstore or online. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our dive into Spain under Franco. Madrid, 1957. The hot summer sun bakes stone roads clogged with traffic as a young journalist steps out into the street. Cars hum by and the city thrums with activity, but under the current of a seemingly stable society are deep rifts that had not disappeared in spite of the greatest efforts by the man in charge. They call him El Caudillo, the Warlord, a title that the man himself chose and wears as a badge of honor. Nearly two decades after that war that put him in power, he refuses to let anyone forget what happens to those who oppose him. The journalist can see this in the faces of everyone he meets. From the waves of people wearing some sort of state insignia, red arrows on a black field, to the Guardia Civil and the Greys, the military police that patrol every major settlement across the country, and the fact that everyone's place in society is preordained by the Catholic Church and by El Generalissimo, the country is nothing short of a fascist dictatorship. But how can this be? The young journalist is an American, you see, and he grew up in the waning days of the Second World War. Didn't all the fascists die off after the war? Well, not quite. Let's go back and look at how this state of affairs came to be before looking into it a little deeper. Spain through the 1800s had had a rough time of things. Long gone were the days of the vast globe-spanning empire. Upstart states like the USA were now taking bits off of them, and ever since Napoleon had marched in, they'd been relegated to a second-rate has-been power. The restoration of the Bourbon dynasty to the throne of Spain in 1874 saw several new political movements grow in the wake of the relative inability of the central government to properly look after the country. The Carlists were traditionalists. They believed in the power of the Catholic Church and that another branch of the Bourbon dynasty should rule Spain as kings. Anarchism was a political philosophy that had emerged all throughout the world at different times, but anarchists in Spain generally advocated for the dissolution of the state and the establishment of small self-governing and self-sustaining communes. The Republicans thought that Spain should rid itself of the monarchy entirely and become a democracy. 
When the First World War came around, Spain remained neutral. This didn't help, however, as whilst it managed to avoid the mass casualties of the war, the military was left restless and the government had grown no less corrupt. Sensing an opportunity, Miguel Primo de Rivera, a general, took over in a 1923 coup. But by 1930 he was out, and after a slew of interim generals and admirals, the king, Alfonso XIII, established a republic in 1931. This second Spanish republic saw the king abdicate and flee, and the socialist republican faction won a huge number of seats in the government. But all was not well in the politics of Spain. You see, the republicans were, nominally at least, socialists. Thus, all of those traditionalists who were afraid of communism and loyal to the Catholic Church feared that Spain would lose its traditional values. Despite the popularity of the Republic, borne out by the major victory in the 1931 elections, the Great Depression saw major labour reforms have mixed results, leaving many happy and as many unhappy. The tenure of President Manuel Lazaña Diaz created further rifts to open up. A new constitution aimed at democratising and liberalising the country included provisions to enforce secularisation of Spanish society abolishing Catholic schools, for one. This alienated the moderate Catholics who had been fine supporting the Republic up until now. This government was supposed to be provisional, and after its creation of the Constitution was supposed to call for new elections, but sensing instability, these elections were postponed, and two years added to the mandate of the government as well as a slew of new reforms. The Jesuit order, a long-standing player in Spanish society, had had all their schools closed and property confiscated. The size of the army was reduced as well as its funding, and Catalonia was granted a measure of home rule. All of this was, to the traditionalists, a sign that the country was on the verge of collapse. This wasn't helped by the fact that the Pope himself, Pius XI, stated that he felt that the Catholic Church in Spain was in danger. All this time, a new ideology had been creeping into Spanish society in the background. Fascism. Started by Benito Mussolini but based on combinations of other ideologies wrapped around an ultra-nationalist core, the Falangist movement, as it was known in Spain, began attracting various smaller right-wing groups to its banner, including the Carlists, the Traditionalists, Centrists, Catholic Supremacists, just about everyone else who felt opposed to the Republican government. Over the next few years, both right-wing and left-wing governments would form, arrest their political opponents, face opposition and then collapse only for the other side to form a government and do the same thing. But the left wing of Spanish politics became equally disappointed with the Republic, as many felt that it wasn't going far enough. When the anarcho-syndicalist collective, the CNT, boycotted the election due to crackdowns from the government on their activities, the right wing CEDA collective won in 1933. They then began undoing the reforms of the socialists and purging the military, leading to a situation wherein the upper echelons of the military were right wing. Then came the Black Two Years. Francisco Franco, a young general in charge of the Army of Africa, was sent to Asturias in 1934 to put down a rebellion by the CNT. By 1936, the political sphere in Spain had become completely polarised. On the one side were the Republicans, a big tent camp encompassing a huge array of forces from left-leaning centrists who wanted democracy to radical communists who wanted a revolutionary state aligned with the Soviet Union. On the other side were the fascists. Whilst the right-wing groups were as varied as the left-wing groups in their political desires, the Phalangists had begun absorbing all of the smaller parties into their fold. The Republicans formed the Popular Front, which was accused by the right of being a global Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy turned Spain communist. Patently not true, but when the Popular Front won the 1936 elections and Azania came back to power, the Phalangists were furious. Crackdowns began as word spread that the fascists were plotting a coup, which they were, and whilst a number of the leading figures were arrested, several politically motivated shootings in Madrid indicated that the uprising was beginning. Many who supported the Popular Front had lost confidence in their ability to govern the country, and began to arm themselves. 
The military, which had, as you may recall, been wooed by the fascists, were armed already. Franco launched his coup in Morocco in July of 1936, and the generals under his command raised armies in most major cities. Whilst it had been intended to be a swift and brutal coup, the fascists took over Morocco and the Balearic and Canary Islands quickly, but most of the rest of the country was still controlled by the Republican government. This would be no quick coup, but a protracted civil war. Spanish society as a whole was drafted, nobody was left out of the fighting, and you had to pick a side. The Republicans saw it as a fight to maintain order and freedom against fascist tyranny. The fascists saw themselves as crusaders, striking down heathens hell-bent on turning Spain to the devil. Old and young, men and women, rich and poor, everyone was involved in the Spanish Civil War. But even as the war began, the Republicans were plagued with internal turmoil. You see, the government wanted to put down the coup and return to their nominally democratic modus operandi, but groups like the CNT and other communists and anarchists saw this as their time to shine and bring the global revolution to Spain. With such differing ideals, there was tension within the ranks. The nationalist camp, as they are now known, was made up of a variety of groups with a variety of aims, but they had a much more I'm all right Jack approach. So long as the people in charge, at this point the fascists, helped them carry out their aims, it didn't matter what sort of government was ruling over them or how they achieved those aims. The ends justify the means, even if that entails things like summary execution. Think of it as a little like the people who stood idly by in Nazi Germany. The fascists were going to leave them alone as long as they shut up and did what they were told, and those darn communists would finally get pushed out, so what does it matter who gets hurt? You may well have heard of the International Volunteers. Whilst the Republicans did have some help from the Soviet Union, the majority of their volunteers came from all sorts of places. The International Brigades included famous figures like Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell. The Nationalists, on the other hand, had bigger players in their corner who, more to the point, were geographically closer and were providing much more specific support. Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy both supplied men and material to the Nationalists, helping transport Franco's well-trained, well-equipped army of Africa across the Mediterranean, as well as giving the Luftwaffe a target practice on Spanish Republicans. The bombing of the city of Guernica by the Germans is immortalised in Picasso's painting of the same name. Franco had not begun the war as head of the Nationalists, but when his army of Africa arrived and began winning major victories, he was made Caudillo, the indisputable head of the Fascist forces. He cultivated the image of a strong man who would bring order to Spain and restore its traditional values. He didn't need to be specific about things, the traditionalist groups just ate it all up. Meanwhile, in the Republican camp, the government was switched out for a communist one, which, for those of you paying attention, might realise would further alienate the anarchists who felt that the communists' aping of the Soviet Union would mean another kind of dictatorship. Several recurring problems gave the nationalists the edge in the war which we've kind of touched on already. The first was the international support. Britain and France decided to remain neutral and the limited Soviet support the Republic was getting wasn't enough. The Nationalists, on the other hand, received huge amounts of support from Germany and Italy, which would later play a role in the opening stages of the Second World War, as the experience Germans and Italians gained here would allow them to run roughshod over the less experienced Allied troops. The second was the equipment and training of both forces. The Nationalists had a plurality of experienced generals and fighting forces, as well as German and Italian supplies. The Republicans ran the gamut from the organised government forces to militias composed of volunteers, some of whom in the international brigades didn't even speak Spanish. The third was the perpetual lack of unity and a common vision. The only thing uniting the Republicans was a mutual hatred of the nationalists. The continuous and fraught debates about what would become of Spain once the war ended created rifts within the Republicans that became irreparable. The nationalists, on the other hand, were more willing to subsume their efforts to Franco. Those who didn't would be purged after the war, to the complaint of very few. By 1939, the position had become untenable. 
A civil war within the civil war broke out as the anarchists and communists started to fight each other. Shades of this sort of infighting would plague the French resistance against the Nazis when the communists and the de Gaullists would stockpile arms to fight each other rather than fight the Germans, but unlike the French resistance, no outside powers would come to help the Republicans. On the 1st of April 1939, the last of the organised Republican forces surrendered, and Franco created a fascist dictatorship in Spain. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the reprisals against Republicans were harsh beyond words. During the war, the Nationalists had no qualms about committing atrocities if it meant securing the loyalty, through fear, of the people in their conquered territory. Historian Michael Seidman compared the situation to the Russian Civil War. Unlike the Tsarists, who were plagued by communists behind their lines, the Nationalists just shot anyone they thought would be a Republican. This included groups the Nationalists claimed to represent. Catholic priests who had served as chaplains with the Republicans were shot, as well as Protestants, and large numbers of non-combatants. This didn't ease up under the Franco regime either. Known variously as the White Terror and the Limpeza Social, the cleansing of society, the Nationalists killed as many as 200,000 people between 1936 and 1945 in a targeted campaign of repression. The extent of the authoritarian rule was almost all-encompassing. Concentration camps were used to contain prisoners of war and sort them into those who could be recovered and those who were unrecoverable. The latter category were executed as a matter of policy. Children of former Republicans were taken from their families and sent to state-run orphanages organised by the Catholic Church. The so-called lost children, possibly up to 300,000 children, were forcibly converted to Catholicism and kept in relatively unsanitary conditions and in some cases beaten and abused. The sins of their parents were thought to live on in them, and the sin had to be physically purged to create good Spaniards. This included mothers-to-be and new mothers who had sided with the Republicans. Kept in jails, their children were taken away from them and sent to orphanages. Children who had been born were sent to prisons as young as nine years old and physically assaulted by the guards to beat their latent republicanism out of them. Spanish nationalism went through the roof, as you might imagine. Bullfighting and flamenco dancing were promoted as examples of pure Spanish culture, Everything un-Spanish was censored at best and destroyed at worst. Spanish was the only legally recognised language. All autonomy granted to special regions was retracted. Wipozca and Biscay, two traditionally Basque regions, were specifically classified as traitor regions. While Spain was declared a monarchy in 1947, Franco was the regent for life. It would not be until 1969 that Juan Carlos I of House Bourbon would be named as his successor. Falange was the sole legal party of Franco with Spain. Franco was the dictator, and his rule went. Spain was heavily centralised, with very little wiggle room. Almost until the very end, Franco signed every death warrant personally. Press censorship was naturally prevalent, any media that was not aligned with Francoism was banned outright, chief editors had to be nominated by the government, journalists had to register with the government, and thus only those selected could be journalists legally. To say that Spain was run along the lines of a theocracy would not be too far of an exaggeration. The Catholic Church held major sway over almost all aspects of Spanish life. The law of political responsibility made the Catholic Church an extra-legal body and had policing powers of their own. Some jobs required the approval of a priest to obtain. Gender roles were rigid and strictly enforced. Patriarchy was the order of the day, and women were subservient to men in all things. 
Women who rebelled would be publicly humiliated, and women needed permission from their husbands to take jobs or open bank accounts. If a woman cheated on her husband, this was a crime. A man could be legally forgiven, so long as he didn't live with his mistress. Women couldn't become judges, they couldn't testify in trials, they couldn't hold professorships at universities. Divorce was illegal, and all divorces that had happened were retroactively unmade. Children of civil marriages that had occurred under the Republic were declared illegitimate. Abortion and contraception of any kind were banned. Single teenage girls who had become pregnant were taken by the state and kept at maternity prisons. Nuestra Señora de la Almudena was the most infamous. Here they would be kept until one of two things happened. If they were lucky, they'd be released at the age of 25. Otherwise, they would be lined up and men who had paid a fee would be allowed to select a choice one to marry or take as a domestic servant. The women in these lineups had no choice in the matter, and conditions in Nuestra Señora were so bad that many committed suicide. The LGBT community was, as you'd expect, persecuted, sent to reform camps, or just arrested. The changes began in the late 1950s. Spain's economy had scarcely recovered from the devastation of the Civil War and Franco's autarky, the cutting off of international trade, had done very little to help. More than that, however, Spain was afloat in the international community. The decision to remain neutral in the Second World War had meant that Franco would survive the conflict, but with the fall of fascism, his opposition to communism was the only thing keeping him in anybody's good books. The broader international community refused to cooperate with Francoist Spain. Economic liberalization began in 1954. The United States, the International Monetary Fund, and members of the Opus Dei religious sect convinced Franco to proceed to more liberal economic policies despite his continued opposition, and oil exploration began on the plains of Spain. Hollywood films began being shot in the deserts, and soon Madrid was teeming with expats looking to make a buck off this emerging market. For the Spanish, it was like stepping out of a time machine. All sorts of appliances that had been commonplace in the United States were just now arriving in Spain, and for those working at hotels like the Castellana Hilton, the high lives of the movie stars and oil barons must have seemed a world away from the deprived conditions they'd been living in. Businesses began setting up shop. Thanks to Franco's persecution of trade unions, taxes and wages were low, health and safety was non-existent, striking was forbidden, and the market was fresh. While Spain began to recover financially, it came at the expense of the common worker. This all came to an end on the 20th November 1975. Francisco Franco died at the age of 82, and he was succeeded by Juan Carlos I. The king declared Spain to be a constitutional monarchy with an introduction of democracy. So now comes the time when everything is made right, right? Well, not exactly. You see, nobody was sure how to proceed. Many of the former Republicans were dead in exile or had been intimidated into silence and their children had been raised to believe that their parents were the devil incarnate. The narrative of the Civil War for the past 30 years had been dictated solely by El Caudillo. But the Wheel of Time was now threatening to crush those who had sided with Franco, and the new democratic Spain began re-examining its past and looking for people to associate with the old regime and its crimes. So, the Amnesty Law was signed in 1977. This allowed all those Republicans in exile to return, but it also pardoned everyone who'd participated in the massacres, abuses of power, beatings, sexual assaults, kidnappings, brainwashing, torture, and every other little infringement of basic human dignity that occurred under General Franco. This law is still in place today. It codified in law what was called informally the Pact of Forgetting. Compare it with South Africa after apartheid. Councils were set up for the purpose of reconciliation and acknowledgement of the crimes committed by apartheid, but forgiveness and moving forward, by and large. In Spain, however, the pact of forgetting meant pretending like it never happened. 
No one was to address it, no one was to mention Franco all those years or bring up those still missing, unaccounted for in the disappearances. Children whose parents had been executed would be misled and both sides of the Civil War were effectively made legally equal. The fascists got off scot-free. This policy has been castigated by all sorts of human rights groups, but by and large is still the policy in place in Spain today. The historical memory law, which sought to acknowledge the victims of the Civil War, was passed in 2004, but the amnesty law is still in the books. To paraphrase one Spanish commentator, quote, You cannot prosecute Francoism, it's already history, and only historians can judge that period. Unquote. In February 2021, the last statue of Francisco Franco in Spain was removed. Does this mark the end of that era, or are the effects of Franco's rule still being felt? Moreover, does that pact of forgetting apply beyond the borders of Spain? Is the general ignorance of this period a consequence of the international community's collective ignoring of Spanish fascism, or simply the fact that almost everything that happens in general gets consigned to the waste bin of history at some point? To discuss questions like this and more, we go now to an interview with Ruta Sepetis, acclaimed author of the book The Fountains of Silence, for some of her thoughts on the period. Enjoy. Welcome back to Demystified with Ashley Styles. Now, I'm here with a very special interview with author Ruta Sepetis, the author of books Salt of the Sea and now The Fountains of Silence, Carnegie Medal winner and New York Times number one bestseller. Ruta, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Now, your book is set in Francoist Spain. That's a topic a lot of people don't know much about. So how did you first come across it? What attracted you to that? I was on tour for my first novel um, in Spain and meeting with some young readers. And they asked, would I consider writing about it? And to your point, there are a lot of novels about World War II, but not so much about you know, Spanish Civil War and, and post-Civil War. And so I sort of accepted their challenge to try to bring history out of the dark. That's rather interesting because I noted your other two books, Salt of the Sea and then your first novel were also about um, World War II in a broader sense. Is that a conflict that you find particularly interesting? I find conflict in general interesting. I find situations of adversity interesting because I find that they carry these you know, universal themes um, that can be equally inspiring, um, you know, themes of like strength through struggle and hope through hardship. So I think I'm attracted to themes uh, and stories of adversity. Now, given that it is such a, uh, not obscure, but less talked about topic, what was the research process like? Did you find that easy? What did it entail? Honestly, I found it nearly impossible because I am such an unlikely candidate to write this novel. I'm a Lithuanian American. Uh, my Spanish is quite poor to non-existent. Uh, and so I researched for seven years because I, I really take this question very seriously. What right do we have to history other than our own? And I researched and in my research, I did find that there were Americans in Spain during this time period. And that was the approach that I decided to take. And that came upon, you know, in the seven year research cycle that I discovered this, this entry into the story. Well, that actually leads on to an interesting other sort of bit of it. Did you discover anything in that research process that you weren't expecting to find about the period? 
Oh, definitely. Uh, and that's part of what excites me about writing historical fiction. It's a bit like being a, a detective. You know, you discover and uncover. And some of the things that I did find that really surprised me, I found in the diplomatic archives and also in the U.S. presidential archives with regard to the type of interaction and support that the United States was giving the Franco dictatorship and why that surprised me. Now, does that constitute any other like historical details that you wanted to include in the book, but didn't things that didn't quite make the cut? Yes, there were were elements that I really wanted to include, but I didn't have enough backup information. For example, let's say a diplomat might refer to something in an oral history testimony that was shocking. And I would pull that thread and chase down that detail. But if I couldn't find it, even though I'm writing fiction, I have to ask myself, does this detail serve the, the, the history? And if I couldn't back it up, I couldn't include it. And some of the other things, um, the book is set at the Castiana Hilton, this American hotel. And there were some you know, actors and musicians and um, who were staying there. This is during the 50s. And the stories were so sordid and so, I mean, just shocking. But then I asked myself, does that serve the story or does it serve the history? And all of these shocking details about Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner, it didn't necessarily serve the history in Spain. So I didn't include those details, for example. Well, actually kind of leads on to the next question I was going to ask, which is that some historical fiction tries to deal with events very, very, very accurately, whilst others sort of base themselves in history and then go off for the sake of a narrative. What kind of balance do you like between getting those historical details in and getting your narrative in? Oh, first and foremost, um, I'm, I strive for authenticity. Uh, if something happened on a specific date and in a certain place, that's where it has to happen. I won't bend the timeline uh, at all. Um, and so also because I have what's called a crossover audience, my books are read by students in you know sixth grade all the way up to retirement communities. And because young readers are reading my books, I do feel a responsibility for that accuracy and authenticity. So I would say, first and foremost, that's my goal. And then I try to wrap fiction around the, the real story. How does it work then writing for an audience that broad historical fiction? Do you ever feel that there's some things that you need to tone down for younger audiences or some things you need to simplify for certain audiences? No, I, I don't because as we all know, young people, they are so genuine. Talk about authentic. Uh, and they can immediately tell if you're trying to speak down to them or if you're trying to sugarcoat something or gloss something and they just won't have it. I mean, they, you know, they're just so authentic. So no, I don't have to do that. What I do do though, um, I challenge myself as a writer to use language and literary devices and descriptive form in a way um, to avoid just being gratuitous, because the time periods I'm writing about are so full of violence and brutality and, and cruelty, shocking cruelty, um, that my first drafts are, are pretty rough. And so I'm not trying to tone it down, but I'm challenging, my, challenging myself. How can I show um, motion through language? How can I show 
brutality, but through language instead of just being gratuitous. Hmm. How do you treat historical characters when they feature in your work? You talked before about uh, authenticity. Is it important to depict historical characters as they were, or is it an author's prerogative to take a bit of artistic license with that? Oh, I think every author of historical fiction has their own process. So I can only speak to my process, but I know for me, I, I don't feel comfortable, for example, taking um, a, a dictator and creating fictional dialogue with that dictator. For example, in this book, Francisco Franco, Franco appears and, and Franco is present, but I am not putting words in that historical figure's mouth. Um, I, I don't do that. My characters are composites. So I'll interview maybe a hundred people and I'll pull together threads from 15 to 20 people to create one character. And that way, I hope that I'm representing a larger, a broader human experience than just let's say one, the experience of one person. In terms of the impact on modern Spain, do you think a lot of the people in Spain today obviously will be more cognizant of the history, still feel the legacy of Franco as Spain, even 50 years on? I do, definitely. Um, and I say that because as I mentioned, it was these young students who asked me to write about this history. And they explained that Franco had ruled for you know over 30 years. And when he died, that the country decided to adopt what's known as the pact of forgetting, that in order to move forward toward democracy, they felt the safest way was to simply for a while to forget their history. But as a result, there are a couple of generations who feel that they don't really have a full grasp of the history and don't know the truth. Um, and so many people, when I, whenever I've toured Spain, have, have expressed that uh, to me. And since the book has been published and is published in, in Spain, I've received so many notes and so many emails from people um, you know, that express that they themselves are still researching their own history. I would have been quite curious about the reception of the book in Spain. So it was a positive reception. It, it was. And again, I don't take that for granted because here I am. You know, I, I'm a Lithuanian American. Imagine if someone in Spain wrote a story about uh, a Lithuanian. So I, I don't take that for granted. But also, I do think that the approach of having a main character who was an American and, and using the metaphor of a, you know, of a camera and a photographer as a lens into, you know, looking at this from the outside in, um, perhaps that helped. Um, but I am very much open. Uh, I, I think that when we publish a book, it belongs to the reader and it's up to the reader to determine the value, not for the author to explain it. And if people in Spain who have experienced this, if they have comments, I am nothing but open, um, you know, to and receptive to hearing them. What do you think the most important lesson we can learn from the story of the lost children of Franco with Spain is? in terms of learning lessons from history and telling untold stories? Oh, wow, it, that's a big question, but I'm grateful that you, you asked it because you know this book is called The Fountains of Silence and there are these themes throughout the book of silence. And I think with regard to many difficult pieces of history, not only world history, but family history, there, there are elements of silence around it. And I think that with a buffer of time, 
And with a lens, let's say, of historical fiction, we can go from a position of reaction to reflection. And when we do that, we have a buffer and we have a bit of distance. And my hope and goal is that that'll help us, you know, build bridges of historical memory. Um, and that at some point, maybe history won't stand between us, but, but it'll flow through us. And I think historical fiction can facilitate that. Very good answer. Uh, just to round things out, without spoiling too much, of course, are there any particular future topics that you would be thinking of planning to cover? Other little hidden niches? Oh, yeah. I'll, and, and I don't mind giving spoilers because I write the books, but history writes the stories. So it's not as if they're my own plots. And uh, I've just finished a book that's set in Romania during the Romanian revolution and tells the story of the 23 million innocent Romanians who suffered under the brutal Ceausescu regime and the Romanian secret police. All right, well, thank you very much, Ruta Sepedis, for giving us this interview. Your book, Fountains of Silence, available at any good bookstore, I imagine. That concludes our interview with author Ruta Sepedis. Apologize for the differing quality I was recording on a different mic. This special episode of Demystify was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Get to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. This episode was also made in partnership with Penguin Publishing and Ruta Sepedis, so check out her book, The Fountains of Silence, wherever good books are sold. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.